guess the initial impulse comes from one's life that puts something on paper, but then once the words are on paper, the initial barfing is done. It's just a matter of craft of like making it into something good. No longer a journal entry, but it's a piece of entertainment, something that somebody would want to read, even if they didn't know me or care about me. Welcome to another episode of Write Up Your Life, where life happens and life storytelling transforms it. Our show is brought to you by lifestorytelling.com. And guess what? You don't have to be a writer to write your life stories. Lifestorytelling.com will teach you how. If you've been through hell and lived to tell about it, or your family skeletons are poking out of the closet, you'll want to check it out at lifestorytelling.com. guest today is author James Kennedy, who writes teen and young adult books, including The Order of Oddfish. He has dreamed up quite a challenge for kids. Share the plot of your favorite Newbery Award-winning book in a 90-second movie. The 92nd Newbery Film Festival is an annual video contest in which kid filmmakers create weird movies that tell stories of Newbery-winning books in about 90 seconds. Every year, the best movies are shown at gala screenings all over the country. James believes that the ability to get distracted is an easily misunderstood talent and that irresponsibility just might be a secret virtue. James, tell us a little bit more about the 92nd Newbery Film Festival. The Newbery Award has been around since 1922, and every year one book wins the Newbery Medal and like about four or five books win Newbery Honor. And you know those books. You see them in the bookstore. They have like the, the kind of oh, yeah. metal on the front, like A Wrinkle in Time or Holes or Charlotte's Web. About five years ago, I got together with my niece and nephew and their friends, and I made this uh, quick video of A Wrinkle in Time, this 90-second video of Wrinkle in Time, just in their backyard and using costumes that were from around the house. We edited it together, and we put it online, and it got some attention. And I thought, wouldn't it be fun to make a 90-second Newbery Film Festival like any book that won the Newbery Award or honor, the kids make movies of it all over the country. So I got together with Betsy Bird of the New York Public Library. She was a children's librarian there. We kind of publicized it. The first year we had the film festival just in New York City at the library there and in Chicago at the library there and in Portland. And every year after that, we've picked up more and more cities. Excellent. And do you have one in Houston yet? We need to get one here. Yeah, I would love to do it in Houston. So do kids contact you or do they just send, submit their their video? Yeah, there's a website, 90secondnewberry.com. That's where you find out like all the rules and everything like that. And the kids make their video. Um, and then it, the, the due date is usually in like December or January of the year. And they just upload the, the video to YouTube or Vimeo or whatever. And they send me the link and they tell me what book they did. And then I throw it up on my website. I say some nice things about it. And then when we do the actual film festival screenings, I kind of tweak the show from town to town. I kind of highlight local contributions. So like the New York screening, I'll show more stuff from New York than elsewhere. But there's usually like five to 10 ringers that I show in every town. And one of the things that I really like about the film festival, how it's evolved over the years, is how it's no longer kids just quickly summarizing the book, which is entertaining in itself. But what I've noticed is that kids are more and more putting weird twists on the material, either like doing it in a different medium, like in claymation or with like uh, shadow puppets or puppets or cut paper animation or in Minecraft or something, or they'll do it in some weird style. 
Like they'll do it in the style of Star Wars with like lightsaber fights. How neat. I got this one version of Ramona and her father, but done in the style of James Bond. <laughs> or, or like doing something like Charlotte's Web, but in the style of a horror movie, which makes sense yeah. because like the very first line of Charlotte's Web is, where's Papa going with that axe? Right. Like sometimes choosing these different genre choices can actually bring out something about the book that you didn't know before. That's a very cool outlet for kids and teens. It's a plot line that they don't have to try to come up with, right? (laughs) That's right. But they get to be creative about it. And that's kind of stretching their creativity muscles. Yeah. I don't mind if if they kind of like go off the rails a little bit. I got a 90-second Newbery of Mr. Popper's Penguins that was done in the style of a zombie apocalypse. So what is the November or December is the deadline? Yeah, the deadline is usually in December, but I've extended it to January. And then we have the screenings in like late January, February, and March. And I usually do the screening partnered up with some local author. So like in New York, I've done it with John Cheska or uh, Libba Bray, who are two well-known children's authors. Mm -hmm. In San Francisco, I did it with Jenny Holm and Catherine Applegate, who have both won Newbery Honors and Newbery Awards. Actually, through this way, I've like met a lot of other children's authors and made some friends. Now, you have been writing for a lot of your life. In fact, I read that you started your first story when you were seven. <laughs> well, yeah. The reason that I, I put that up is because I found, like in an old box, the book that I had written when I was seven. When I do school visits, sometimes I show this book just to prove to kids that like, no matter how bad your first stories are when you're young, you just keep on trying because you can eventually become a published author because this is, it's the worst book ever. Right. Now, well, you've got The Order of Oddfish now. That's a novel, but it's for, is it young adult? Yes. It's it's middle grade young adults, you know, through high school would be interested in it. And I'm curious as the inspiration for that story. Uh, So what the book is about is a girl, Joe, who's found in a washing machine when she's a baby with just this note that says, this is Joe, please take care of her, but beware, this is a dangerous baby. And you were asking about like what inspired it. Part of the inspiration, I, like, I love books like, like Harry Potter or like Narnia books or Lord of the Rings and all that. But I noticed that for a lot of them, they're always about a young man, or like Star Wars even, like you know movies too. The premise is always there's a young man who's a chosen one who's going to like save the world. I thought, what if I reversed that and made it be about like a young girl who's like a cursed one who's going to end the world. And that's like an idea that had not been done. And then I also noticed that a lot of like fantasy novels, it always takes place like in a forest or like some enchanted wood or, or like there are people always going on journeys and they're always going up and down mountains and camping. But like I spent most of my life in a city and I've never seen like a fantastical city done to my satisfaction. Right. So I thought, what if I took like Tokyo and might make a forest fantastical do the same thing, but do it with a city. So that's where that idea came from. And also I wanted to do something that had like a kind of sense of humor that was more generous or wide ranging or fun or bizarre than what I've been seeing in some children's literature. So those are the things that kind of inspired me to write this. Right. Tell me about the process of writing. I mean, do you, first of all, draw from your life or get inspired by things that you see? Or is it mostly things that you want to see or want to experience and then you put them in written form? That's a really good question. Um, In terms of like things coming from my life, 
like sometimes like things come from like I'll hear one of my friends talking right let me put it this way writing dialogue is super hard dialogue that's natural and believable and is entertaining but it's not so hard when you just like listen to your friends around you and the way that they speak and the stuff that they do because everybody is speaking obviously authentic dialogue all the time you're kind of surrounded by all this great stuff that you can just swipe because they're not going to remember that they said it. <laughs> right. <laughs> also, just in terms of like finding inspiration, just like watching the news. There's a famous story of, uh, what's her name? Suzanne Collins, who wrote The Hunger Games. She said the idea for The Hunger Games came from, she was kind of like flipping through the channels one day and it was like the war in Afghanistan. And then she switched, it was a reality show. And they switched to the channel again, war in Afghanistan, switched the channel again, reality show. The two kind of like came together in her brain. Oh, That's how she got uh-huh. the idea of Hunger Games. A similar thing happened for me. The villain of the book of the Order of Fish is this guy called the Belgian prankster, who's like this kind of like terrifying, kind of seven foot tall. And he goes around the world doing these terrifying, insane pranks. And, and, so, and he has his own TV show, so he's kind of like a celebrity terrorist. And the way I got the, the idea from him was that the Belgian prankster is that I was watching TV. This is before I even like thought about writing this book. And it was like 1997, and somebody had put a pie in Bill Gates's face. Do you remember this? When somebody no, I don't. walked up to Bill Gates and put a pie in his face. I was like, whoa, that's interesting. And then I read newspaper articles about it, and whatever they would refer to him in newspaper articles, they'd always call him a Belgian prankster, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Belgian prankster, Belgian prankster. And then I looked into the guy, and I noticed like the key puts pies in the faces of people all over Europe that he doesn't like. Oh, my goodness. And he's got this whole group of followers who help him out. And I don't even know if this guy is even still alive. But every time he's referred to the news, it's always Belgian prankster, Belgian prankster, Belgian prankster. So I thought, like, what if somebody graduated from mere like pie throwing and and stuff like that to like more and more elaborate supernatural pranks like you know filling the grand canyon with pistachio pudding or or ending the world right yeah so i just named the character the belgian prankster and kind of made the story fit that and so even though the belgian prankster is the weirdest character in the order of oddfish he's the one who's most based on a real life person i can't wait to read this book now (laughs) it sounds exciting but i'm wondering if it's really a cool way to write to take a seed of what's real and then elaborate on it and maybe look at maybe the world through some other lens other than the one you see every day oh yeah and then once you write the thing then it becomes part of like the furniture by which you perceive the world there's a famous story about tolkien when he made this like elaborate world for like lord of the rings and everything and he was like taking a trip to venice um, and he said, oh, it's just like Gondor. <laughs> he couldn't even like see the world except in terms of the thing that he had created. But in a way, we all do that anyway. Like we all kind of create our own private mythologies and we see the world through that and we just don't admit it. Uh-huh. We, we just live in our own kind of weird web of overlapping stories that we either get from pop culture or we get from our friends and family or we make up ourselves that's the only way we can really perceive the world like through those stories in those terms. Right. Making up your own kind of gives you maybe a little bit more control over that than you would ordinarily have. I like that. Yeah, we think in story and that's what connects us is story. That makes sense that we would view other things around the world as according to the stories that we've heard and seen. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what makes people nervous, especially like parents or, or teachers, they see kids making inappropriate stories 
and like, oh, no, th- those stories are bad. But in fact, the kid is like processing the darkness of the world through the story. By making a story about it, you kind of neutralize the thing and you make it safe. That, like after 9-11, a lot of kids were drawing pictures of planes flying into buildings. And in one sense, like, oh, that's super creepy. Or like, oh, that's morbid. They shouldn't do that. But that's the way that they process it. They kind of like, make it right. art that they can control and they can put in their terms. Like maybe it's like planes crashing into buildings and like a monster or a bunch of TIE fighters in the picture too. The, like, it's such an unimaginable tragedy and, and it makes you feel so unsafe. You got to find a way to keep mm-hmm. yourself safe. Like when I was in school, I would get in trouble for writing stories that were like too violent or that, like this is not you know appropriate for school. But like I was trying to like come to terms with understanding stuff. Right, that's really interesting, and it reminds me of something a counselor once said to my girls: if they had bad dreams or nightmares and they woke up, because your body reacts the same to real life as it does to that dream. Mm-hmm. And she said, imagine immediately, imagine a better ending to that story. Mm. So if a monster is coming at you and it's going to kill your family in your nightmare and you wake up, your body is still reacting to that. And so immediately say, okay, cut. That's the movie set. You're a great monster. And, <laughs> and finish that story in a much better way, which helps your physical reaction to it. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. That's- so I can see that with written stories, maybe that's being that extension of real life and the scary things that actually happen in real life. And maybe writing helps that. And sometimes a kid might say, no, my story is about my family getting killed. And that's how they deal with like the fact that this is what I'm feeling. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, like, like, I don't want a happy ending to this. I, I want it to be like, as I have these dark thoughts and I need to get them out safely. Right. But I think you have all these weird urges or thoughts or ideas that don't fit, like uh, you're not allowed to say publicly. And you can kind of get that all out in not just a safe way, but like a constructive way. You can use mm-hmm. that to make something through stories. Right. I love that. And I wonder how many movies and books and all kinds of stories are out there that started as that. Interesting. It also explains, I think, why certain things get popular. Like kids are, live in a very cutthroat era right now. They're being told, like, you have to do well on this test, you know, or else you won't get a good job and you'll die alone and penniless. And you have to do good <laughs> college or else you'll die alone and penniless. And you have to, you know, get and even like now you have to like get into the right high school or even like the city. I live oh, in Chicago. Yes. You have to get into the right elementary school. And so, of course, a, a book about kids who fight each other to the death is going to be popular. Of course, the Hunger Games is going to take off. Right. Kids are in this situation, uh, fight each other and, com- and compete against each other in this world made by adults who don't care about them but Mm -hmm. you you know they for some reason think that it's in everybody's best interest to pit everybody against everybody else in this like kind of ruthless battle to the end and i think that's why like the harry potter books took off too but for a different reason because it's those those appeal to kids who are a little bit younger at least the first ones and it's kind of like oh kids are like just getting used to the idea of school but school is kind of like a, a weird place that's full of arbitrary rules and adults that don't make any sense. And I'm learning mm-hmm. stuff that like seems like it's going to make sense at some point, but it doesn't make sense now. And Harry Potter is all about, yeah, that's what Hogwarts is. Like, exactly. about school, we're just going to give it back to you like, and wrap some magic around it. 
to help it go down easy, but it's all the things that you feel about school. And that's why it works. If it was oh. about like magic, nobody would care. It's about like feeling lonely at school, feeling misunderstood, trying, making friends, making enemies. Right. If you base it, your story in something real like that, then people will come. And if you base it in some kind of like real life hurt or real life dilemma, experience right what advice would you give to maybe a kid or a teen or even an adult who would like to maybe start getting some of this out on paper or maybe taking some of that real life pressure and putting it into a fantasy or a novel or start writing about and processing it through that any advice you would give and How I, does that I guess work? what I mean is like do, what's the goal is it to use it as therapy or is it to make a piece of art Ooh. Can I choose both? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because if it's therapy, then just like every day, write about what you feel and what you're thinking Mm -hmm. and just like get it out and then you can put it in a drawer and you don't have to worry about it anymore. Like if you're kind of dead set on making a piece of art, you have to take all the stuff and structure it in a way that a stranger would care about it. And that's the hardest thing in the world. Like nobody really wants to read anybody's diary and nobody wants to hear anybody else's dreams. As soon as somebody in the morning tells you, let me tell you about this dream last night, you immediately turn them out. Right. Like nobody cares. And so if you're trying to make your fears and fantasies and problems, if you're trying to reify them in a story in a way that somebody else would care about it, you're going to have to interact with them in those fears and fantasies at at a certain point in a very cold-blooded way that an artist has to do. And you have to like let stuff go and and be ruthless with your own creations and your own ideas. Now, if you're doing just doing a therapy, yeah, just write and write and write. And then something will eventually probably take shape underneath that. And then maybe that could be turned into a piece of art of some kind. I think whether or not you're making a piece of art or you're or doing it as therapy, just doing it every day, I think, is the most important thing. And then once you have like a critical mass of it, because usually when, when a kid writes, they're not writing for therapy. They don't think that they Right. If you say, write about your feelings, the kid's going to say, you know, go die. They don't want to. Yeah, that. boring. <laughs> they say, like, write about um, a magical school. They'll say, I can do that. And then they'll immediately reproduce all their problems in school in that story unconsciously. Oh, there you go. Every summer at Northwestern University, I used to do a science fiction and fantasy writing class. And invariably... Then I would not tell the kids to write about their feelings or anything like that. I would just like give them pointers on how to write genre fiction of science fiction and fantasy. But invariably, every single story that the kids wrote would come out as like, you know, I have to go into the dark cave because I need to find my mommy, but uh, <laughs> daddy's not letting me. And I'm just like, I'm not qualified. <laughs> this is therapy here. Right. And so like this one kid, I remember this is like, uh, a kid who was in high school, he was writing this story about this kid who's in college and he's in this fraternity, but the fraternity, like you had, there's like human sacrifice that happens in the basement of this fraternity. And like, as a pledge, he has to go through with it. But then, you know, he gets caught up in all this kind of devilish stuff. And I was like, yeah, I get it. You are taking your feelings about like knowing that at one point you're gonna have to go to college and be part of some gross, awful fraternity with gross, awful hazing rituals and you're gonna have to go mm-hmm. along with it because you want to like have some kind of social standing in the university that you're at oh i've seen right. the, the videos and i've heard stories about like there's that one story like at duke like they made him eat a vomit which is like Ew, a, a gross. Com- an omelet made out of vomit <laughs> oh. yeah so yeah put make sure that gets in the interview that part right there yeah okay <laughs> so he was feeling He's like, this is something I have to deal with in my future. 
And so he was like giving a fantastical version of it. Right. And he did not know that he was doing therapy on himself, uh-huh. but he was. That's very cool. Well, James, this has been fascinating and very entertaining. Oh, thank and you very from Vomlet and before. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I appreciate it. Uh, can we please na- name this episode Vomlet? Vomlet, yes. yes. I think the name will be Vomlet. <laughs> yes, the Vomlet and other tales. James, where can folks reach you? If you go to jameskennedy.com, that's my blog. If you want to find out about the 92nd Newberry, it's at 92ndnewberry.com. 90newberry. That's with one R. One R, yeah, right. The 92ndnewberry.com. I tweet at I am James Kennedy, like I A M James Kennedy. I'm just finishing up a novel right now, and I'm kind of showing it around uh, called Bride of the Tornado. And it's much darker and weirder than The Order of Oddfish. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of it, and I kind of like hit a creative tailspin when my kids were born. They're four and six now, and I'm kind of like coming out of it. But for a mm-hmm. while, I did not. I, I would keep on writing, but it just wasn't good. And until I picked up this old story, Bride of the Tornado, and I realized, oh, I'm going to take this old thing and transform it and make it have to do with my experiences now. It's not a story about fatherhood or anything like that, but it does like take all those feelings. It's more of like a grisly Midwestern Twin Peaks Cronenbergian body horror novel that is not funny. It's just like straight up horror. But I'm looking forward to getting it out there and then moving on to the next project. I got to start whipping these books out. There you go. (laughs) Can't wait for that one. Well, James, thank you so much for your insight. And we look forward to what next wave of 92nd Newberry Awards will show. Thank you. Appreciate it. Great information from James Kennedy. At the end of each episode, I peek into the Life Story Toolkit and share information on one particular tool that you might consider using if you're writing or would like to start writing about your life. The Life Story Toolkit is sponsored by LifeStorytelling.com, where you can find your life theme, discover where to start writing, and craft your life into a compelling story. This episode's Life Story Toolkit features a cliché finder. As a good writer, you want to eliminate overused cliches from your story. It's much different than a metaphor, which helps clarify concept in a fresh way. Cliches are overused expressions, ones that have lost their meaning over time and don't provide the details needed for great writing. We need to eliminate them because we want to provide original and unique ways to share our stories. The Cliché Finder is an easy way to find cliches in your writing. Just copy and paste your text on the website, And the cliches are highlighted so you can eliminate them. Easy as that. You can find it at cliche.theinfo.org. That's all we have for today. In the last episode, Nick Loper shared how blogging about his side hustle failures brought him success. So if you've thought about blogging about your life or you're interested in getting a side hustle so you can quit your day job, you might want to go back and have a listen. Next episode, we start a series of interviews with songwriters who tell their stories with lyrics. If you like this podcast and find it valuable, would you consider sponsoring the show? You can support it by sharing each episode on your social networks, and you can head over to our special page at patreon.com slash right of your life and become a patron. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash right of your life. Not only will you feel good knowing you're helping the show, but there are special perks for supporters. 
If just 15 people provided $5 per episode, it would help us reach many more people who could benefit from writing about their lives. We love our listeners and would enjoy interacting with you on social media. We're on Pinterest, Facebook, and just about anywhere you can hold a great virtual conversation. My handle is Right of Your Life. This show is put together by consulting producer Nick Jaworski at podcastmonster.com and myself, Stacy Curtis. We hope that today you have the right of your life. <laughs>